When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's Football Digest with myself, Ned Keating. We've got a bit of a Midlands special this week. Uh, joining me is Conor Bromley, who you'll very quickly hear is not from the Midlands. Um, but we do also have the Birmingham Mail's Ashley Breeson reports on Aston Villa for them. So obviously a very timely uh, guest to have with Stephen Jackman sat this time last week, yep. roughly this time last week. And, and uh, Unai Emery set to join at the start of next month. And Rich Jones, a long-suffering Wolverhampton Wanderers fan who works for us on the Mirror Football side of things. Rich will come to Wolves later on it will be like a therapy session for you I promise um, however chaps despite the fact that your expertise lie in the Midlands we are going to start this morning uh, talking about a player from the northwest of the country uh, Manchester United's Cristiano Ronaldo interesting week for him Connor and I'm going to come to you first on this one uh, didn't want to come on against Tottenham uh, last week as a, as a late substitute had a falling out with Eric Ten Hag over it was suspended for their game by the club for their draw at Chelsea at the weekend, uh, but it looks like this week kind of that things uh, have been patched back up, and that he's back in the squad for uh, the Europa League game against Sheriff tonight. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit coronation street, isn't it? You know, a lot of drama happening at Man United. I will preface this and say I've got a dog that is likely to potentially bark. So if that happens, he probably just disagrees. Um, but yeah, I think the the Cristiano Ronaldo situation it's it's fascinating I think when we, he came back to Man United last year and there was the drama that he could be going to Man City um, and then he eventually came to Man United with Ollie, and it was meant to be this romantic fairy tale it started fantastically with that game against Newcastle I think got a brace and then since then it's just been a, a, a slippery slide and from the outside looking in, it feels like, you know, it's not a match made in heaven. It's, it's definitely a match made in hell. It just hasn't worked from day dot. And it must be sad for Manchester United fans to watch this legend come back and have the complete opposite impact as to what they'd hoped. And I think Bruno Fernandes is the the key indicator for me. He's such a poor player when Cristiano Ronaldo's in the team. And then when Cristiano Ronaldo's not in the team, he's the player that they had before he signed. And, I think, unfortunately, you know, this move is just not going to end in a happy way. And I think Cristiano Ronaldo, for his own sake, needs to leave Manchester United in January. I think Manchester United, for their own sake, need to um, cut ties with him. You know, even if he doesn't have another club, pay up his contract because it just hasn't worked. And he seems to have a negative impact on almost every area of the club at the minute. You're looking there purely at a uh, footballing point of view rather than the business proposition, which is that he probably still shifts a fair amount of shirts. <laughs> um, so I'm sure, I'm sure the, uh, the the guys in the, the retail department would obviously be uh, not wanting to lose him on a free transfer for that value alone. Um, Ashley, obviously, you know, you're kind of looking at this from afar, as I said at the top of the show, covering Aston Villa for our uh, Birmingham Mail titles um, and obviously regularly appearing on the uh, Claret and Blue podcast there as well. But from what you're seeing from outside, is this an early test that Eric Ten Hag has seemingly passed. You know, we've, there's been so much in the past about 
how United has a toxic dressing room, certain players, certain characters that kind of affect it, that try to run the dressing room, try to run the club, really. You know, we've heard about it all in the past. And here's Eric Ten Hag. He said from the start that he wanted to change the culture at Man United, get away from this toxic atmosphere. And the first opportunity that he's had to really put his stamp on, make his mark, lay down and say that I am the leader now of this dressing room, he's, he's clearly done that. There's no one bigger name probably in football other than Lionel Messi when it comes to Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> Such a big name, big talent. Um, comes with that big reputation, but Ten Hag's really kind of, you know, set the tone here for the rest of his management career at Manchester United. Yeah, a lot, a lot of his stance he took with it, Ten Hag. It's, it's his way or the whole way. I think that's, that needs to be. Can, can you imagine a player doing that in the Fergie era, walking off? <laughs> you know what I mean? He would never have occurred at Man U again. So I think a lot of the stance that Ten Hag's taken, I think he speaks to the majority of Man U fans. I think they're on board with it as well. It can't happen. He left his teammates in the lurch. It's all about Ronaldo and me. It's the Ronaldo show where the, the club's more important than that. So I'm with Connor. I'd sell him in January. Needs to grow up a bit. The kiss them made up now. I get that. But um, but yeah, I think they need to cut ties in January and we'll, we'll see what happens from there. But I've locked the manager's stance. So I've been impressed with Ten Hag from afar. And um, yeah, give him time. I think he should turn it around. We do have a listener's comment in already this morning from uh, Camilla Benson on Facebook. Uh, semi kind of agreeing with yourself, Ashley, and, and Connor as well about the fact that he needs to leave, but suggesting maybe the summer uh, might be better for him. I don't know. I think that's probably a bit too long there. But, Rich, I think we're all in agreement this morning that we've we've reached a point of no return, really, for Cristiano Ronaldo at Man United. It's it's a case of when he goes rather than if he goes now. Uh, yeah, I agree, but I think if you're playing devil's advocate, I almost wonder whether like this might have sort of might be the sort of catalyst that sort of changes things a little bit in the fact that I think it's clear that Ronaldo really misjudged it. I mean, if he'd stormed off down the tunnel from a game they drew one one or lost two nearly, probably would have, you know, had his supporters. But the fact that he did it, you know, at the end of probably, you know, one of the best results Man United have had this season, a really good performance, um, it kind of it I think it's kind of backfired in a little bit in that no, I think pretty much everyone the majority of people seem to sort of back Ten Hag over it and agree that he was in the wrong. And I think obviously we know all the stories. Like there's clearly been efforts to sort of sound out clubs around, you know, around the world about where he could go. And it doesn't seem that there's, you know, a huge amount of offers on the table for him. And you just wonder whether this might be the sort of moment where he realizes, you know, all of that that incident's done is sort of tarnished some of his legacy at United and, you know, maybe it might help him sort of reassess and realise that, right, I'm going to have to sort of settle for what I can get. And, you know, if he's, if he's happy to just sort of play sort of some games and it's certainly coming off the bench. We saw last season how many goals he scored. Like, he's still got some value to the team in that regard. Probably not as much, you know, value as what you'd have expected when you first signed him and, and the money he's on. But, you know, if he can't sort of get away in January and there's not really any suitors out there, you know, you wonder whether it's a sort of instant way he might sort of actually sort of spark him to kind of knuckle down and, you know, just do what he can do for the team because there's still something he can offer there. Maybe not as much as was expected originally, but yeah, it's not an ideal situation, but you do wonder whether this might have been, you know, the big sort of argument and the big sort of instant that might hopefully sort of um, settle things down a little bit and, you know, add a bit of stability. You know, it's hard to see, but it could be something that in the end actually sort of is the last bit of the drama and we sort of have a bit of a relationship between Ronaldo and Ten Hag where, they can sort of get the best out of him and see so he can have a part to play over the rest of the season, I suppose. 
We've had another comment in on Facebook this time from Willie Mullen. Uh, again, <laughs> probably reiterating the view of most Man United fans, as well as the four of us on the show this morning, um, saying that they need to get rid of him, uh, suggesting a little bit earlier than Camilla did in January, um, saying that there's no one that's worth the wages that Ronaldo's on. Obviously, a reported five and a half, uh, £550,000 a week. Uh, even just thinking about that seems to get it very confused in my head and I can't get words out properly. Um Colin, we have to, you know, Rich brought it up there about the best performance of the season. I suppose that's exactly what Ten Hag wanted when he did drop Ronaldo for the game against Chelsea. You know, we saw it last year and we saw it played out on Amazon Prime very clearly recently uh, in the Arsenal or Nothing documentary where similar situation, Mikel Arteta dropping Pierre and Aubameyang, showing that he's the man in charge of that dressing room, you know. Um, we saw how that played out. It played out well for Arsenal. You know, they 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 uplifted from that point where Aubameyang was suspended, didn't play for the team after that again. Um, and I suppose when you make such a big call, the the kind of fear that Ten Hag, he probably won't publicly admit it, but the fear that Ten Hag must have had would have been, what if this goes the other way and the players turn against me on this one? But for him and for the fans too as well, must have been really reassuring and really great to see that they probably did turn in their best performance of the season just after he made such a big call. Yeah, and I think that if you're a player at Man United and you saw the way that Ronaldo behaved against Tottenham, I don't think you would rally behind them. That That's not professional. It's not the expectations you have as a professional footballer or professional in any industry that you, you know, go early when you're expected to come on and, and make an impact. And, you know, maybe if he was meant to come on, which he reportedly was at the end of that game and United had conceded and maybe he ended up getting a draw or whatever, then maybe, you know, the criticism could be there in the sense that he was meant to be on to defend corners. He's a big lad. Um, I just think that, this whole situation is just a disaster for Man United. And the only way that Eric Ten Hag could manage it is the way that he has. And I think he will come out of this smelling of roses and Cristiano Ronaldo definitely uh, won't, unless, of course, as you said, they can work together from now at the end of the season. But I just don't see where Cristiano Ronaldo fits into this Man United team. The, the, the best when they're a high-pressing team. Oli had them finishing second in the Premier League, playing that system whereby... You know, they had quick attacking players who would harass opposition defences and Ronaldo just won't do that. It's not his game style. And that, to me, means that there's only one way this can go and that's Ronaldo will be finished at Man United and Man United will be far better off not having him in the team going forward. Actually, I suppose the next question then, having all of us unanimously said that we expect Cristiano Ronaldo to leave Man United, is where will he land? Um, I'm sure, you know, if a, if a deal could be agreed, Aston Villa still probably wouldn't say no to, to having a player of his quality up top. Although, I don't know if the form Danny Ings seems to have been in in, in recent weeks, you know, he might, might struggle to get in the squad there. But <laughs> where do we expect Ronaldo to go? Obviously, he's a player that isn't at the peak of his powers anymore. He's probably got a couple of years maybe left in him. Obviously, he's a, you know, a freak in terms of... Uh, his, his physicality and the, the the way that he's able to keep his condition going and, and the condition that he maintains himself in. So I might be wrong there and might have four or five years left at the top, but it isn't going to be a big club in Europe, is it, that he's going to be going to next? I mean, it could still be PSG, could shock us, but he's done it in Italy, done it in Spain, back in England. We're probably looking at, at one of those, what you would kind of term as a retirement leagues, aren't we? That's, that's probably where Ronaldo's next destination is. Possibly, if you had probably asking, you want to stay in the Champions League in, in, some, in some kind, but um, yeah, I, I think the retirement clubs, as you mentioned, it's a front, really. Sporting manager was asked about it yesterday. No, 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 reunion back there. I don't know. I don't know what the lads think. I don't know where we'd end up, to be honest. But 
you would be would be, not the CEOs and the, and the shirt sales and the, the Ronaldo brand that will come with it will be tempting for a lot of clubs. Don't get me wrong, it's massive on that scale. So yeah, I'm unsure, man. I'll be Barcelona. I might just do it for the crack again, but I don't know. Tough one. Rich might want to take him with his, uh, given Jorge Mendes's uh, relationship with Wolves, he might end up yeah, down at yeah. instead. <laughs> he was listed on the odds lad next manager somewhere, like 200 to 1 or something. So I've seen stranger things. things. <laughs> <laughs> but Rich, just coming back to your point that you made previously about how it was, uh, you know, United's best performance of the season, just really wanted to get your take on how you think it's gone for Ten Hag so far. Um it has been, you know, a difficult, let's be honest, probably about a difficult 12 months for United, probably 14 if we include since Ronaldo has been back there. Ever since he's joined, they kind of seem to have been on a downward spiral and you know, culture changes, manager changes, player changes as well. How do we think Ten Hag's getting on so far? Nearing that kind of, you know, not really th- first three months in the job. He's been there longer than August, but obviously we're getting to that point, aren't we? Where we, you know, we'll probably have lots of time to look back when the World Cup starts and see how things have panned out. But in terms of up until this point and where Man United are, you know, looking like they're going to challenge for top four, is Ten Hag showing plenty of positive signs for the fans to be able to cling on to? Yeah, I think he's done a really good job so far. To be honest, I think everyone that you sort of when you look back at his previous jobs and his previous clubs, he's kind of he's always tended to need sort of three to six months to kind of stamp his his sort of vision on the team and and sort of really get the best out of people. Um, and so I think the fact that they've you know generally looked pretty solid and you can see a bit more of a, an identity about them so far is a, a good thing. And I think um, you know there's a lot of compare. I think for me the comparison when he came in is it's similar to like in a way it's similar to when Liverpool got Jurgen Klopp in the fact that like they needed to give him time. It was always going to be something where they're completely sort of changing their trajectory and it's going to take some time. But the difference is that when I was looking back for the other week at uh, the squad that Klopp inherited at Liverpool that was sort of similar position in the table, maybe a bit lower, but there weren't really any many players in that dressing room that were kind of indispensable either for the amount they'd paid for them or their like standing at the club. Whereas the difficulty with Ten Hag is he's inherited this squad where you've got so many sort of big players that either, you know, you've got, for example, Maguire that costs 80 million, 90 million. You've got, you know, the likes of De Gea, Luke Shaw, um, Fernandez you know, people who've got real ties to the club who are sort of big personalities, big figures at the club. Um, he's kind of inherited a squad of players where it's really hard for him to kind of have a complete clear out, which is why I think the way he's handled the Ronaldo situation is really impressive. And he seems to be doing a really good job of handling a dressing room that, you know, how many managers now have sort of struggled to get the best out of this dressing room. So I think, um, yeah, they've had sort of blips along the way. I think that was to be expected, but I think you can sort of really see a bit of a vision. You know, some of the new signings who were questioned have looked really good. Lisandro Martinez has looked good. Casemiro has looked impressive the last few games. And there's been like a few goals as well where you look at it and you can really sort of see his style of play. Um, so I think this sort of work in progress is going to be bumps in the road, but I think overall they're, they look in a pretty good place, to be honest. Um, I think if I was a United fan, I'd be really encouraged by what I've, I've seen from him so far under Ten Hag. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999.
That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. From Manchester to Birmingham now, uh, we're going to move on to Aston Villa here. And as mentioned at the top of the show, we're joined this morning uh, today on this episode by Ashley Priest, uh, who is the Birmingham Mail's Aston Villa correspondent, also appears regularly on their Claret and Blue podcast. Um, if you can give that a listen, you can find that on your podcast catches, uh, like you would obviously this one as well. Um, but Ashley, obviously a big week uh, for Aston Villa. Uh, Unai Emery being appointed as Stephen Gerrard's replacement. We'll come on to Unai in a bit, what he can bring to Villa, obviously, you know, previously in the Premier League as well. But just on Stephen Gerrard, um, this probably won't be the last time you're, you're probably asked about him or speaking about it. I'm sure it will still crop up. But for now, at least, looking back on that year or so in charge that he had, what went wrong for him, really? Obviously, he arrived with all this fanfare and everyone thought, you know, yeah. oh, he's done so well at, at Rangers, you know, he'll, he'll transfer it to the Premier League. Almost, you know, as soon as he got the job at Aston Villa, being anointed as Liverpool's next manager near enough immediately. But now he's got a lot of work to do to re- restore his, uh, his his management profile after, as I said there, obviously a difficult 12 months or so uh, at Aston Villa. Yeah, a lot of work. He's, in the end, he's way, way out of his depth. I can't see managing the Premier League for a long, long time. Um, as, soon, as soon as his assistant left him, Michael Beale, the wheels started to fall off pretty, pretty big style. Um, lost the dressing room towards the end. Crew with injuries. It's on two big players in the summer. Ruba Carcamara, Diego Carlos. Beat some Champions League clubs to get them to. They were both injured straight away. And he was left, left with last season's squad. Minus Michael Beale, who was propping him up for... Well, looking back, that, that was definitely the case. And just out of his depth, Gerard couldn't, couldn't turn it round. Tactically... Not very good. Um, sounds a bit brutal because oh God, I got on well with him. Good, nice bloke. Gave you, gave you a lot in press conferences. Desperate to succeed. But not got it as a manager. Just yet. Okay, did well at Rangers. We get that. I mean, I think Sal's going to drop off in that final season. And like I say, he had a good good backroom behind him. And just clearly out of his depth. Villa fans turned on him. Villa fans give him a lot, a lot of patience, to be honest. But... Just, just didn't work out in the end and he was there less than a year. His win percentage was pretty poor as well. And I, I think the whole calendar year results was it was very, very bad. And it was a very bad decision by Christian Perslow back in, yeah, back in last November to sack Dean Smith off a bad, off a run of five straight defeats. Given what Dean, Dean did with the club at the time, got promoted. Um, yeah, a bit of a bit of a brutal call to sack Dean then. We got the man in, sexy name, Gerard. Great for the uh, the the corporate side of things and whatnot, commercial, but it didn't happen at all. And bad fit, bad bad fit. And uh, in the end, yeah, the writing was on the wall. Rich, I'm aware that I'm asking this question to a Wolves fan, and you probably wish that Aston Villa kept him on for for another few weeks at least. But do you think they made the right call now? In you know spotting where the weakness was, realising that possibly their man may have been available. Obviously, Unai is coming in to to take that role from November first. But acting quick, acting decisively is what Aston Villa seem to have done in this situation. Um, we'll come on to Wolves' predicament in, in, in the next section of the show. But for them to kind of recognise that and move fast, especially in, you know, where we're in this phase of the, phase of the season where there's so many games that, that you're kind of playing like every other day almost, that by doing this now, Villa have given themselves a very good chance of kind of moving up the table as quickly as possible. Yeah, I think, obviously, as you say, we'll touch on Wolves later, but I think, like you say, it's really decisive, isn't it? They've obviously realised that they've got a chance to get Unai Emery, who's, you know, we'll get onto that a bit more, but, you know, he's got a good CV behind him. He's done well at Villarreal and, you know, it's a, it's almost certainly, I think, from a neutral perspective, an upgrade on Steven Gerrard in terms of his experience, his tactical side of things. And I think it's just, it's good timing as well, isn't it? He's going to get sort of a few games, then he's going to get the World Cup break. He's going to have... 
I don't know, like he's going to have a bit of time before the January windows where he's going to be able to scope out the squad, see what he thinks, see what he needs. And then, you know, we've seen how Aston Villa are operating. They've been quite aggressive in the transfer market. They've made some really good signings. They've, like Ashley said, they've signed some players that, you know, have been quite, you know, they've beaten Champions League clubs to some of these players. So I think, um, yeah, they're, they're certainly, they've shown, even if they got the Gerard thing wrong, even if that didn't work out, you, they've shown themselves to be really ambitious as a club recently. And um, yeah, I think acting sort of quickly to get Emery now is another example of that. And I think the timing-wise, it's it should set them up quite well, really. He'll have a few games to scope out what's happening. Then he'll get the World Cup break to sort of work with the players that aren't at the World Cup and see what he's see what he's really going to do with this squad. And then, you know, you'd imagine that they'll be in a position to sort of back him in January if there is anything he wants as well. So, yeah, I think it's... Um, Unfortunately, quite a, quite a promising move for Villa. So, <laughs> actually, in terms of the man that's coming in, uh, as we mentioned, it is Unai Emery. Um, as we said, they're obviously acting quickly, but it's not his first time managing in England. Uh, Arsenal fans, I think, are still suffering the trauma from from his stint in charge there. Um, and if you ask a few of them, they've not got very complimentary things to say uh, about his time in charge of, of the club. That being said, he's rebuilt his reputation. At Villarreal, maybe that's an idea for Stephen Gerrard. Go off to, to Villarreal and, and win the Europa League there to rebuild your reputation, Stephen. Um, but but that's it. He comes with his pedigree now, doesn't he? That he is this this winner. Obviously, he won so much with Sevilla in the past as well. He has this this kind of winner's mentality that hopefully he can instill uh, in the squad. And I know, obviously, on the Claret and Blue podcast this week, uh, Guillaume Balaguer was a, was a guest. Obviously, if you can find that episode, as I said, available on all your usual podcast catchers, give it a lesson, listen because it is a, a brilliant listen. But again, Guillaume had so much positive things to say about the appointment of Unai Emery. So it suggests that there, there might be kind of blue skies on the horizon for Aston Villa. Well, well, was Unai's spell at Arsenal that bad? I've had, a little, I've had a little dig into it. I mean, he had, he had a bad thing. He won one in nine. He's got him bullet in the end. But I think his, his, room, his room record was 55%. Our test is 57%. There's nothing in it for me. I don't, I don't know what the Arsenal perspective was, Ned. Um, so I have some basic players there. <laughs> This is coming from a Spurs fan, so I'll probably say that I really loved having him there um, because yeah. it was brilliant just seeing a few. I think it was more the, the kind of style of football. I remember when he started as well, what was it, three straight, three straight defeats, didn't score a goal, I think, if memory serves yeah. me correctly. So again, yeah, as a Spurs fan, that was that was fantastic to watch. But no, we're, we're, Connor and myself, we, we work with an Arsenal fan at the minute and uh, yeah, he's, he's been warning uh, you know, one of your colleagues, Dan Rollinson, another who's a regular on your, on your podcast, been warning Dan that Aston Villa fans should be a little bit worried and concerned about what might come with Emery. But as you said there, you know, you look at his track record, you look at his win percentages, where he's been, and you kind of, you know, that's what the history books are always going to look back at. It's not going to be the style of football that, you know, when no. we're looking back on Wikipedia in 20, 30 years' time, it's, <laughs> it's those win percentages there. And as you said, you know, it, it points to being a, a positive appointment, at least for Aston Villa. Yeah, I mean, going back to the Arsenal stuff, it's coming off the back of Wenger, wasn't it, as well? So it's going to be difficult in, in its own right. But, but yeah, um, Prepare for. I think he's meticulous in his detail. I think he's more more detailed than Pep Guardiola. So the the I've been told the Villa players are in for the shock of the lives. Um, the video analysis is is massive for him, and I think I think a few players have I spoke might be falling asleep in that. So it's, it's, it's going to be a massive culture change at Villa. Body Morris, in for some yeah, in for a big changes up there. Previously under Dean Smith, it was quite 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 relaxed. Under Gerard, it was quite pally as well. Um, if he was in Gerard, had his little clicks and his circles. But I think this one, it's no messing around now. Time to get to work. The owners have spent lots of money, £400 million spent on assembling the squad. We can't be in the bottom half and, and, and struggling towards a mid-table finish now. It's kick on time at Villa. And, and yeah, Emery's the man the owners have chosen. So whether the players take to it, 
remains to be seen. If they don't, I think I think it's a bit of a, a ten hard Granada situation. I think some some will be moved on. You don't you don't want to be here. You don't listen. Okay, we'll get rid of you in January or the summer. So yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. I think it's what's needed. Um, and yeah, okay, everywhere he's been, he's got a, his, his CV speaks for itself. He was a Champions League semi finalist in, in in May, and to come to a club who were last week battling relegation in the right down there, it shows the ambition of the owners. They took four days to to get them the new man in. Um, and yeah, so fantastic appointment on the outside. I, th- I don't think we can get a, a better appointment there. I mean, Fallon Villa fans are back for Pochettino and stuff like that, but that's that's way out, way out of our league at the moment. So yeah, I'm looking forward to the, the Emery era. And um, yeah, I think we're in for a big change at Villa now. Another comment in on Facebook this time from James Riley uh, suggesting that Emery is the opposite of Premier League proven. Um, again, obviously the proof will be in the pudding when he does take the uh, eventually take the reins at Aston Villa from, from the start of next month. Um, but kind of in terms of Emery and, um, you know, we've spoken already about, you know, the fact that he, he didn't really work out from at Arsenal, only 18 months, I think, there in charge, wasn't it, before he got the, uh, before he got the bullet. But will he have learnt from that? What he, you know, how the Premier League is different to obviously where he's worked, you know, in, in other countries around Europe. And he can maybe use that to his advantage this time around so that it isn't, you know, it doesn't come to a sticky end as it, as it unfortunately did for him at Arsenal. I think he was unlucky at Arsenal that he was taken over from Arsene Wenger. I mean, we saw what happened with David Moyes at Man United. It was the same sort of thing to replace a manager like Wenger in even last 18 months is not actually too bad really, because you know, you look at what Arsenal have done since Emery's left, they have completely transformed that football club, the way it works, the ideologies of it. But when Emery was there, the idea was to try and continue what Wenger was doing. And ultimately what Wenger was doing was, you know, top six. They weren't anywhere near Champions League qualification. He just kind of continued that trajectory on. So I don't think Villa fans should be worried about what he's done at Arsenal. I think they should be more excited about everything he's done elsewhere you know he's he's genuinely one of the best coaches his record in Europe is fantastic and I think for Villa to get a manager like him personally from me looking at it I did not think Aston Villa would be able to attract Unai Emery I remember last year Newcastle tried to get Unai Emery and how attractive that job was with the the money that Newcastle have. You look at what Eddie Howe's done there as well and what he's been able to bring in in terms of signings. The fact that Emery turned that job down and accepted this Aston Villa job to me suggests that um, there must be a lot of positive things on offer to Unai Emery. So I, I think if you're a Villa fan, you've got to be excited because you look at who else was on offer. You know, that look at Wolves, and we're going to talk about Wolves, but Wolves has struggled trying to get a manager in. Like it, it's not easy to bring in top class managers and Villa have, have done it very very quick and they've brought in somebody who I thought was was to be brutally honest actually it was out of their league in my opinion I don't yeah. think that yeah, yeah. um Unai Emery would have been somebody that I thought Villa could attract so I think it's a it's a brilliant appointment it's a good move for the Premier League it shows how strong the Premier League is that a bottom six team a team that's basically since they've been promoted back to the Premier League being middling you know are able to yeah. attract yeah. on the best managers from La Liga so I think it's just it's a good move all round. Rich, we'll, we'll come on to Wolves as we, as we said in due course, but just as a, as a general kind of look at the Premier League, obviously Wolves are still searching for a manager. They've already sacked Bruno Large. Aston Villa have sacked Steven Gerrard. There's been a lot of other movement around in terms of managers that, are, that have already been sacked. 
Do we think that because obviously there is a World Cup, there is that four-week window that these managers uh, might get, any new manager might get with their players to work on ideas? And, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, a completely different scenario. You'll never get that again, probably in the footballing calendar, unless we decide to have another World Cup in the Middle East in, in our lifetimes and whatnot. But do you think that having that four-week gap between games, allowing managers, potential new managers, to work on their philosophy, their style of play with these players, work out what players they actually want to keep come January, that we might see one or two more sackings in the Premier League before we get to the World Cup? Mm, yeah, potentially. But I think it's it's sort of counteracted by, like we said, the fact that there, there's not really many managers sort of out there at the minute. There's, I mean, yeah, Wolves are obviously struggling to get a manager, but, you know, you look just down the road like, even sort of West Brom have had a really long search for their next manager as well. And I think there's kind of, there's, yeah, there seems to be a bit of a shortage really of quality managers out there at the moment. So um, I think that's the thing that a lot of clubs will be considering. Obviously Aston Villa sort of saw their man, knew they could go and get their man in Unai Emery. I'm certain they must've known they had a good chance of getting that deal done when they made the Gerrard decision. Um, That's where Wolves have gone wrong ultimately is that they've sort of pulled the trigger before they've they've got the replacement. But um, yeah, I certainly think there's going to be a few clubs looking at it, but um, it just all depends on whether the the right candidate's out there really because, you know, there's not a huge number of of managers out there that you look at and think, oh, they're ready to come into the Premier League, I suppose. So I think it's just sort of slim pickings for a lot of clubs who are in that sort of area that are looking at, at potentially making a change. Actually, just finally on Aston Villa, I, I wanted to get some clarity on this. So the man that's keeping the hot seat warm for Naomi at the minute is uh, is Aaron Danks. He's the caretaker coach for, for Villa for yes. the, uh, until obviously Emery arrives on, on November 1st. I was just having a look at his Wikipedia page over the weekend. Now, of course, we all know that, that Wikipedia, sometimes you have to take what you read on there with a pinch of salt. Mm-hmm. But it was one thing that stood out for me and it suggested that when he was previously working with the FA, he'd had a stint. Uh, working as a kind of almost secondment or like a placement, uh, working with uh, Stephen Curry and the NBA side, the Golden State Warriors. I just wanted to, to double check. Is that completely true? Or was it just Wikipedia being Wikipedia again? Yeah, I think it is true, yeah. He uh, blagged his way into to watch the Golden State Warriors. And, and I think I think Dean Smith did it as well, to watch a basketball side of things. And Wes Edens, as you know, he's in charge of the books. And I think football coaches like to broaden the horizon, see how teams teams do it in other sports as well. I think Danks is one of them. Danks, Danks is a big basketball fan as well, I've been told. So, yeah, that, that is true as far as I'm aware. And, and yeah, I think he was looking at Curry's consistency levels. Um, I'm not too much into my basketball, but good player by all accounts. And I think, that, I think that's where it stemmed from. So he got his, got his way in there and he worked with Curry um, based on his performances and how he does stuff. And yeah, Danks, is, um, he's, been, he's been around. I mean, he's Vincent Company's number two at Anderlecht, as you know. He was part of the um, under-20... England World Cup winners in 2017. So he's worked with some some really good play, young players as well. Um, I spoke to him last week, and, and yeah, he said he's, he's a career coach. He's he's um, he wants his, he wants players to enjoy themselves, and he's put some really good sessions at Body Morith as well. So yeah, really good guy. Um, he's a Burt Blue Nose as well, Birmingham City fan. Been adored by the whole team last week, which is brilliant. Um, so yeah, fantastic, and he's done a great job. I think he was given two days to get get the team organised. For that Brentford game, he dropped the captain. He dropped Jacob Ramsey, two star players under Gerrard who wouldn't have been dropped. He uh, introduced a new system, the way the way he he thinks it should go, and we blitz blitz Brentford inside fourteen minutes three 0 And um, Danks did a great job. Players spoke well of him. I just hope he's kept on now. We'll, we'll soon see. Um, so I think Emery will bring his own men in. 
And so I'd like to see Dance kept on. But yeah, really fascinating guy and, and yeah, and been around the world. And like you say, I think that Golden State Warriors visit and working with Curry was, was true. And yeah, um, yeah, interesting. Wolverhampton Wanderers is our next port of call on this podcast this morning. Uh, Rich, you're the long-suffering fan that joins us. We'll try and, you know, not, not you know, kind of make this too damaging for you and try and keep you in happy spirits throughout. But as we said there about Aston Villa going off quickly, identifying uh, Unai Emery as their preferred target, getting him in very quickly. By contrast, this time last week, Wolves were still suffering the fallout of a very public chase for a manager who happened to be, as, as Ashley mentioned earlier, uh, Michael Bill used to be Stephen Gerrard's uh, assistant at Aston Villa. But obviously that all played out in public, all went very badly wrong for Wolves. And I suppose that's probably symptomatic of this, this manager search, you know, sacking Bruno Large when there, there wasn't, it probably should have happened. That, you know, you, you'll say this as well, I'm sure, that things this season weren't great, something wasn't clicking, so they probably did need to change a manager. But as you said, it highlights that there isn't, that many good candidates out there and that Wolves kind of now find themselves in a situation where uh, a man who got sacked from Leighton Orient five years ago in, in the National League is now going to be leading them into into the start of 2023. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, obviously the Michael Beale thing played out publicly, but even that was sort of not the first choice. I mean, Julian Lopetegui was obviously the first choice who, um, you know, turned it down because of sort of family issues. His dad's ill back home in Spain, I think is the, is the reason. And um, he's someone that's been on Wolves' radar for a long time. He was really, really close to taking the job uh, when it was either before Nuno got the job or before Walter Zenger. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he was really close to taking it. And then the Spain job came up and he ended up taking the Spain job. Um, obviously, he's a George Mendes client, um, as you'd expect. Uh, and he was obviously the man that they expected to take this. Um, and I get the sense that well, you sort of you put two and two together. You imagine that them waiting until the new year is still just kind of hoping and praying that he is his situation changes a bit and he's able to take it in the new year. But yeah, the way the Michael Bill thing played out just was really it just seemed really poor, really for it to be, you know, made public that you're gonna be in talks with this guy, um, and then him not to come. It just it just doesn't reflect well on the club at all. It's one of those that you have to be really confident as a club that you're gonna get that done to allow that to become public really and um yeah it's just symbolic of you know the way that things have really kind of got quite shoddy the last couple of years at Wolves to be honest behind the scenes um we came when we came up from the championship we did such a we made some great so obviously we you know we had money to spend in the championship and they spent aggressively to come up everyone knows we had you know Ruben Neves and Diogo Jota playing for us in the championship and it was a strong team but also you know we we made smart signings you know we signed them we sort of signed Raul Jimenez when we got promoted who was a great signing and you know, everything just seemed to run really smoothly on and off the pitch that first few years under Nuno. But then, you know, since then, there's been a few people behind the scenes leave. Um, Kevin Felwell, who's now doing in charge of things at Everton transfer-wise. Um, Laurie Dalrymple was the CEO, was a real good bridge between like the club and the fans. And he ended up leaving, I think, two years ago now to go to Harlequins, the rugby club, who've done really well since he's been there. Um, and... It just seems now that, you know, the the people we've got working at the top, it just hasn't really worked. And um, yeah, there's been some really bad decisions the last sort of couple of years. And as it is, we certainly look like we're just sort of sleepwalking into a relegation battle. And it seemed like they kind of believed that they weren't going to be in this position. Obviously, we've done so well since coming back up. Um, but they're kind of realising the hard way now how tough the Premier League is and you know, there's so many teams like Villa have seen it. They've been sort of dragged in. It looks like they might drag themselves out now, but it's so easy to get dragged into it. And 
it's really hard at the minute to see where the the wins are coming from and, and where the sort of the the character to drag you out of it is coming from, especially with some of the decisions made in the summer. So yeah, I think the manager search is just sort of symptomatic of a lot of the problems that are going on at the minute at Wolves, to be honest. Ashley, at risk of making this section a bit more like bullseye and this is what you could have had. Um, and, and I hope I hope I'm not teasing Rich by by asking this next one, but would had Michael Beale accepted the job, would he have been the kind of person that that, that could have changed things around and, and you know, kind of as, as Rich said there, kind of dragged them up the table. Obviously, you know him very closely from from what he'd done uh, at Aston Villa under Stephen Gerrard, uh, suggesting uh, in your previous comments that he was the, the kind of the man really behind, the, the kind of brains behind the organisation. And he's doing a fantastic job at QPR. Do you think he would have been ready for that step up to Wolves? Yes, I do. Yeah, I think he'd have reset things. He'd have done his stuff his own way, as he's done at QPR now. I think, yeah, I think he would have would have would have done well there. Um, tough luck, anyone going up to Wolves with, with, with the start of their squad is at the moment and some of the decisions there. But I think Bill would have done well, better than they're doing now. Obviously, would have been a good appointment. And I suppose he showed loyalty to QPR in the end. I think that's a rarity nowadays. So. Take me out after him to, for doing that. He's got a good good thing going on down at Loftus Road. So, bold decision by him. He'd be, he'd be enough for millions to take that job by Foson. So, yeah, very bold decision by him. But I think he would he would have improved things. I think he would have stripped it all back, looked at what Wolves are good at, what they're not good at. Um, but yeah, he's a yeah he's a really impressive individual, Ned. And I think he's destined for the Premier League in the not too distant future. So yeah, Wolves missed out on him. But yeah, just like what Rich says. Bad decision after bad decision. Letting Cody go was a big one for me. Lee doing the dressing room. He'd have dragged them up and set them standards that they're missing now. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if Fosun care anymore. I, I don't know. Um, I've seen some of the videos from the Wolves fans spilling out last week against Leicester. It's, it's not good. It's not good down there. And I do feel from. I'm not. I don't. Yeah, I want, I want them to remain in the Premier League if they can. But it's not a good thing. And they're sinking without a trace at the moment. So I think. The, yeah, I don't know what. I don't know what, what's next for them. I really don't. Connor, do you think that this decision to, to allow Steve Davis uh, to remain in charge whilst they, they, you know, until what was it, the start of 2023, I think is what the statement uh, suggested. So obviously he's going to be working, you know, as we mentioned previously about this idea of new managers getting a chance to work with the play, uh, players. I don't know, it could change, things can change very quickly in football and, and Wolves could have a new manager in charge by, me, by the time we hit that break. But are they at the risk of ruining a good opportunity? Because equally then, you know, just, just after the players come back for the World Cup, just after the Premier League restarts, we're into the January transfer window. You'd expect some movement from Wolves given the situation that they're in and obviously a new manager potentially coming in as well. That four weeks isn't just about, you know, as I, as I touched on previously, isn't just about working with those new players. It's about identifying the potential weaknesses in the squad that you've got when you arrive at a new club. So uh, Wolves, by, by kind of stringing you know, to an extent, Steve Davis along and allowing him to remain in caretaker charge while probably still looking for a new manager, potentially, as, as Rich said there, you know, Julian Lopetegui's um, situation could change by the time we get to January. But are they at risk of ruining a great opportunity, potentially, in that, you know, giving that new manager that four-week window to, to really kind of get bedded in without the, having the relentless fixture list that we've got right now? Yeah, I think from the outside looking in, it looks moronic, to be honest. It's the only word you can really use for it. I mean, they've scored five goals this season. It's, you know, that means that if they continue on this trajectory, they're not even going to get 20 goals in the campaign. They've conceded as many as any of the teams down at the bottom. Steve Davis, he obviously did get that win against Nottingham Forest, but that was a, a, a penalty, you know, and it was 
hardly a stunning result that showed how you know positive Wolves are playing. It, it wasn't that at all. It was a, a penalty against probably the worst team in the league that got them a 1-0 win. And then against Leicester, they lost 4-0. Admittedly, I think Leicester had five shots, four went in. Wolves had 20-plus shots, didn't score, but that is Wolves. They're a team that can't score goals. And if you can't score goals in the Premier League, you're just not going to stay up. And they've got lucky the last few years that they have been defensively probably the best team outside the big clubs. And that is papered over a lot of the cracks. But the moment they lose that defensive solidity, which it looks like they kind of have, they're in real danger. And this year, there's apart from maybe Nottingham Forest, another one at Liverpool the weekend, but apart from them, there's no standout really bad teams this year. Often you look at the bottom of the league and it's clear that two teams are probably going to go down last, last year. You know, Norwich were pretty much relegated early doors. We all knew they were going down. And now you look at it, there's literally every team who isn't in the big six and possibly Newcastle included in that as well. All them teams are in danger of going down. You know, they're all tight knit together. There's no clearance between the bottom teams in, you know, up to Brighton and ninth. There's only six points. You know, normally at this stage, the league starts to have some sort of, you know, you kind of see where everyone's kind of at. And I don't think you can see that right now. So I think Wolves are scoring a massive own goal by not trying to get somebody in now. And, I think had results maybe done what Gary O'Neill has done at Bournemouth, where they've been plodding along, picking up points, and you know it looks like they're going to be in a good chance of staying up Bournemouth this year because they are getting results. Wolves don't look like they've had that same bounce with the caretaker manager, so it, it just seems nonsensical. I don't know who they could bring in, but don't sack the manager if you don't know who you're going to bring in. It, it just seems like a mess at the minute, and I, I do think that Wolves are... For me, probably the team, other than Nottingham Forest, I think will go down the season. Rich, I'm going to leave you uh, with the final word this morning on on Wolves as well. Um, what kind of manager do Wolves need to get themselves up the table out of this situation and away from, from any danger? Obviously, you said they, you know, they've chased Julian Lopetegui in the past, might go back from in January should his situation change. Looked at Michael Beale as well. But are we almost nearing the, the territory of kind of, you know, a, a Sean Dyche, a, a Sam Allardyce kind of, you know, try and get you out of the hole? What what kind of manager is it, you know, that, that the club need, but also yourself as a, as a fan? What kind of manager would you like to see? Uh, join the club? I think it's a real struggle. I think it's someone that needs to really galvanise the club. I think the big problem we've got is that, you know, when we got promoted, I mean, you know, I know he's on the sort of claret and blue side of the Midlands, but Ash will know this, how much sort of, you know, Wolverhampton, it's like, obviously it's like a one club city and the, the team means so much to the city. And when we got promoted, you know, Nuno and that squad really bought into that, you know, you saw, you know, there were so many sort of clock like celebrations in front of that South Bank from Nuno. He was like really passionate. You got players like, you know, Cody, you know, Matt Doherty, um, Neves obviously really bought into that. Jota, you know, really when he was there, gave everything for the cause and they really sort of bought into the, you know, the area and the club and the team and that sort of thing. And I think since COVID happened, that's sort of gone. Um, obviously, Nuno left. Um, we've only really got Ruben Neves left from that promotion team now. And he's the one that sort of symbolises the club. But, you know, we saw it again at the weekend. We lost 4-0 to Leicester. And I think it was, I wasn't there, but from the people who were there, you had Ruben Neves, Nathan Collins, who really fronts up. Uh, and a couple of the young lads off the bench who went to applaud the South Bank and Steve Davis, who's a Wolves lad who, you know, grew up on the terraces. Um, but apart from that, everyone, every game we lose, everyone's straight down the tunnel. And I think it's kind of sim- it's the sort of thing that when it was all rosy, no one really thought about it. But ultimately, it's the sort of club where, you know, players are coming. It is a stepping stone, which is fine if you do well. Like Jota 
ended up going to Liverpool. He's done great at Liverpool. He more than did his job for Wolves over the years. But, you know, you've got a load of players who know the going's getting tough. It's a lot of players that are there for, you know, the opportunity to try and impress in the Premier League. And I don't think because of everything that was lost with the, the spell where we didn't have fans, I'm not sure if a lot of them are really bought into what the club's about. So I think there's a real sort of divide really that needs to be bridged between like the, the fans and the club. And I think the board and the, the people involved in transfers have really sort of underestimated some of those intangibles and the things away from the football side. I mean, we talked about Connor Cody. I think from a football standpoint, I don't think there'd be an awful lot of Wolves fans who were angry at him leaving. There was a lot of outrage from outside, but from a football standpoint, when we were moving to a back four, I think a lot of fans kind of understood the decision. But then you see now how much the dressing room's clearly lost. You know, Max Kilman looks a worse defender without Cody next to him. He used to bark orders. He was such a big figure in that dressing room. You know, they let Romain Sice go, um, didn't give him the offer he wanted. Again, from a sort of football standpoint, you can understand wanting to upgrade, but he was there for a long time. John Ruddy is the backup goalkeeper, by all accounts, was a big part of that dressing room. And you've now ended up in a position where there's so many players that are kind of the same sort of player. They're like, they're quite fancy looking players. They're quite technically good, but they just don't, for whatever reason, like the goal thing is summed up by it. They don't deliver enough goals and assists. We've got so many decent attacking players who aren't quite a winger, aren't quite a striker. They're good on the ball, but they don't really have, they don't produce double figure goals and assists. And it's just like, it just doesn't really, they haven't really sort of put it together. It just doesn't seem very joined together and put together. And I think we've lost a lot of sort of the character in the team sort of on and off the pitch. And, yeah, I just think we need a manager who can come in and really sort of try and unite everyone, bring everyone back together. And I think it's going to need a few signings in January. But in order to do that, like you mentioned a Sean Dyche or something like that, but it's just hard to see because they're so it's stuck in a certain mould of the way we do things and the things we, the players and the managers we hire. And yeah, Nuno was a great, perfect fit at the perfect time. But apart from that little era, it's there's been quite a lot of sort of bad decisions, really. Um before and after Nuno. So it's hard to, um, yeah, it's hard to see where we go. I mean, we mentioned like we spent a fortune in the summer to try and overhaul Nuno's old squad and back Bruno Larger. And then here we are in October talking about bringing Nuno back, having just spent a hundred million to dismantle his squad and back a manager who ultimately wasn't the right man. So yeah, it is. That's, I think that's the thing. It's hard to see where we get out of it at the minute. Um, there's clearly enough talent in the squad. So there should be, there should be, a manager should be able to come in and take that team up the table and hopefully rebuild in the summer. Um, but yeah, it, it does look like we're on a real slippery slope at the minute. So we'll see what happens, I suppose. <laughs> like I said, mate, it was a, a nice little therapy session for you this morning. Get it all off your chest. Um, chaps, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on, on this episode. Really appreciate your time as always. Thanks to Connor Bromley, Ashley Priest and Rich Jones. And of course, like I mentioned throughout, uh, if you want to hear more from Ashley, you can listen to him on the Claret and Blue podcast, which like this one is available wherever you get your podcast from. Of course, for this one, like, subscribe, do whatever you need to do around it. Obviously, make sure you check in with us uh, for all the latest as well uh, news from the footballing world on the mirror website as well as all of reach's regional titles as well uh, but for now it's goodbye <laughs>